Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. Today I'm talking with Casper Terkyle about his new book, The Power of Ritual, where he explores techniques for creating living ritual that feels personally relevant and meaningful. I'm particularly excited because I, like Casper, work to create real-life rituals as a way to deepen people's sense of connection with themselves and the world. Casper is someone whose ideas I've been following for years now. He's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and has actively been thinking about how to create modern spirituality that's accessible to non-believers and to those who don't feel comfortable in any single religious tradition. Casper is the co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab and co-author of How We Gather, but he's probably best known as the host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And while you may not be a fan of Harry Potter, I recommend you check it out because it is an ingenious example of choosing a sacred text rather than having it mandated by tradition. Stick around till the end of the show when I ask Casper to invent a word or concept to help us talk about sacred and spiritual things without loaded words like sacred and spiritual. And now, my conversation with Casper Terkai. Casper, welcome to Reenchantment. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's great to be here. So I first heard about you when you were still at Harvard Divinity School, and there was a word going around about, you know, two two people, (laughs) Casper and Angie, doing doing some very interesting work looking at how people gather and how people create a sacred community and sacred space. And that's how I first first got to know about you. And since then, you've continued to do uh, this work. And I I think this book that you've just published, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practice, is kind of a, a culmination of at least part of the work you've been doing. Is that right? Yeah, it one of the reasons I was really excited to write it was that it gave me an opportunity to kind of tell the macro story of the kind of the big trends and the the really interesting community stories that we've been tracking in our How We Gather research, and then kind of combine it with my own personal experience, both in my own life, but also with a community that I've been really involved with, my, my Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast community. And so having a chance to kind of combine that, that you know, high altitude with a real lived experience was was very exciting to me. Now, why did you write this book? Or why is this book necessary right now? (laughs) Well, my hope is that the readers will find a real sense of affirmation of the, the kind of moments of meaning in their own lives and an invitation to explore meaning-making, ritual-making, spirituality in more depth. And it it comes in the context of kind of two major trends. One is the growing disaffiliation from religious institutions. So more and more people in America and and more broadly in the Western world uh, are less and less religious. And at the same time, that there's still a, a real hunger for connection, for meaning. But we're not going to the traditional institutions to to kind of find them. And so I think one of the contributors to the the growing trends of social isolation and loneliness is that we have we've 
no, we've no longer in those structures that held us, right? A congregation or a community organization. And so in that context, I wanted to offer people a way to access some of the spiritual wisdom that I learned about in divinity school and also some very practical kind of rituals and tools that, that will help people anchor that in their own life. I've heard this talked about as uh, the kind of fall of the mansions of religion, so to speak, and, and the emergence of a, a garden of various other possibilities. Oh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and I love that kind of nature-based metaphor as well. Another way I've heard it described is that we're, we're moving away from an affiliation with institutions um, and toward an affiliation with individuals. Now, that that's a, not a, an exact uh, comparison to what you were saying, but it's it's certainly a turn away from the religious institutions that we, you know, that have so dominated the way in which we, we, we practice and make meaning of life. Now, why do you think people are turning away from institutions and towards individuals? What is, is there a skepticism towards uh, institutions? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really important question, and, <laughs> and it's one that's highly contested. I mean, some underlying trends that are important to say, one is the changing nature of the economy. So the second half of the 20th century, women entering the workforce uh, at much higher rates meant that they're essentially free labor that supported a lot of community activities, and especially congregations, was just not possible anymore. So you see just a, a real shift in how people are spending their time and the energy they have to, to, to put into work uh, like community. I think another one uh, is the development of technologies like the internet. And so being used to have, uh, being used to having a very kind of distributed way of, of collaborating shifts our understanding, I think, of how power works and how we expect knowledge uh, to be passed down. So maybe a real skepticism just towards a, a single authority or a kind of, uh, you know, a priest or a rabbi who's going to give you the answer. I think that's an important trend to, 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 to keep track of. Uh, and one maybe more political one is that in the 90s, we had a real politicization of uh, religion, especially in the Christian context. So things like focus on the family or the moral majority that were very, you know, anti-gay, anti-women. And so you see a large number of people who who already weren't necessarily participating in a religious congregation now making the decision i don't want to affiliate with that right they that doesn't represent me and so i'm now going to describe myself as an atheist or an agnostic or nothing in particular in ways that maybe a generation ago would have been more risky so i think all of those are kind of contributing factors perhaps the the, the bigger point here is that there's just a growing cultural gap between people who are really embedded in religious institutions and find great value there and for people who are who it just doesn't resonate with like it just doesn't meet their you know meet their needs it doesn't interest them the language is off so it, we're seeing a kind of literally a different language develop within those two worlds yeah and in your book you talk about humans having certain core needs, the mm. need to feel a part of something greater, uh, the need for introspection, mm. uh, for ecstasy of experience, for beauty. And, you know, religions have fallen, you know, have fallen in love with specific <laughs> solutions. <laughs> That's uh, right. I think, uh, Clayton uh, Christensen, you were, you were quoting him. And, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, like their, their solutions, their solutions of traditional religions work and have worked, but 
are not the only ways to go about it. This book is very much about giving people that read it uh, a toolkit, uh, almost a DIY uh, toolkit of either creating your own rituals, your own ways of meaning making, mm-hmm. or finding these kinds of groups and communities around you that already exist. And I guess I want to get into the actual technicalities of how to go about mm. creating a ritual for oneself. But but before we get into that, I, I wanted to ask you, what do you identify as? <laughs> Daniel, you always come at me with these hard questions. <laughs> well, it's a, it's it's one. It, I think it's something that not not many people really really admit to or talk about, and it's especially touchy. I think for for people people like us. I think that that have come from a a background of 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 non belief or atheism. Yeah, and and now are are very much interested in spiritual practices of various kinds. Uh, absolutely, and and it's one of the reasons why I'm always so interested in your work because I know we're kind of traveling along similar roads. So I should share a little bit about what I grew up with to give some context because I was born in England and and raised in the UK. And so you can't escape the Anglican church. You know, it's a national church. The head of the state is also the head of the church, which is plenty problematic, but it it also just means (laughs) that it it is kind of infused in in every part of civic life. And sometimes, honestly, in my experience, in, in ways that were really lovely. So, you know, we may have a national anthem of God Save the Queen, but if you ask most people what's the song that holds especially England together rather than the whole UK it's this song called Jerusalem which is this wonderful hymn and I I, I was shaped by that so whatever the ingredients that are going to be put into the Casper cake as it were there's a dash of Anglicanism and especially some of the hymns <laughs> and you know I went to a school for a few years where we had chapel every morning and so the Christian the core Christian prayer of the Lord's Prayer is, is one of the few prayers that I know and so that's that's kind of baked in there and Another part, a really big part, I would say, of my my spiritual life is the experience of the Waldorf uh, or the Steiner school system. So this is broadly set within uh, a, a kind of Christian liturgical calendar. So you celebrate things like Easter and but we also, you know, danced around a Maypole on May Day. So there's a kind of strong pagan theme, lots of nature-based practices and, and traditions and singing to the cows and Christmas Eve and a very a very strong community built around that school. You sing to cows on Christmas Eve. Absolutely. I don't knock it till you've tried it. You walk with little lanterns <laughs> to the farm. I mean, honestly, it's one of the most meaningful rituals in my life. Uh, uh, growing up, you know, we, it's frosty, it's dark, and you arrive at the farm and there's, you know, maybe 50, 100 people people who've all brought their songbooks too and then you move from from the pigs to the cows to the sheep we even sing to the bees to the chickens um and oh, wow. as, <laughs> you know you sing different different christmas carols to the different animals so all of that is to say that these kind of very nature-based practices were a big part of of my upbringing and then in later life uh, you know having dear friends once i moved to the u.s a lot of jewish friends and and really learning a lot from from Jewish leaders and and uh, rabbinic scholars, Judaism also has had a real uh, impact on on some of my practices, including my my tech Sabbath. So wh- what it comes down to when I describe myself is I, I I can't say anymore that I'm an atheist because I've I've got a very different understanding of what God is and how it how it exists at least in my life. So I'm not quite comfortable there, but I'm certainly also not a Christian or or a 
person who is part of a congregation. So I kind of swim in the middle ground. And, you know, you could just describe the theology as panentheist. You know, you could say it's a, a mishmash. It's it's a very unstable category. That's all I can give you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the, at least the attempt of, of, of drawing a box around yourself. I, I think I think really a lot of people um, can relate to that as well, uh, yeah. particularly with, you know, you write about the, the rise of the nons, the, you know, right. uh, none of the above and nothing in particular, where sometimes people grow up with, you know, uh, a Hindu mother and and a Jewish father, or, right. you know, have all sorts of different fusions and mixtures of beliefs. And, and it, it feels, it feels you know, artificial to label themselves as just one thing in particular. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I think there is a real, I want to question our, our desire for some sort of uniform label, because I, I think it's, I don't know, it, it, it feels slightly misguided to me, because first of all, people have always had multiple identities and practices and you pointed to you know the, the reality of growing up in a home with multiple traditions to force someone to just be one it feels inauthentic first of all but it also i don't think is reflective of our history you know even the idea that there is a single Christianity is massively contested by scholars. You know, Christianity in India looks very different from Christianity in Italy. And so there's already a, a real necessity to talk about Christianities rather than one single label. So all I want to do, I guess, is to, to give ourselves that breadth that really allows us to draw on the different influences and practices and, yeah, just a, a more accurate description of life. All right. So... How do we actually do this? <laughs> so in the book, you you say in the book that ritual uses intention, attention, mm. and repetition. Mm. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about these three aspects that you identify of ritual. Yeah. So I'm really... I know you are a ritual expert. You're, you're a designer of ritual. You know, that there's there's amazing cultural practices and religious practices that have really beautiful and complex elements in their ritual uh, design. What I'm really interested in the book is to help people move from a set of daily habits, things that we might do every day, routines, that already feel like they touch on meaning and that they already are a moment when maybe people breathe just a little deeper or they raise their eyes from from their laptop screen and look out into the world and and to take those moments and to turn them into rituals excuse me and so the way that i do that is exactly with the triptych that you point to i invite people to think of before you start the action have an intention which is greater than the functional outcome so to use a practical example you know if you're gonna take the dog out for a walk for the final walk at the end of the day the functional outcome is taking the dog for a walk but if you layer on an intention perhaps i want to feel like i'm moving from uh, uh you know a time of work into a time of rest or it might be i want to feel grateful uh, and kind of cultivate gratitude or i want to think of a loved one who has passed right i want to remember my mom so wh whatever it is to have an intention that's bigger than the functional task then secondly while you're practicing to have a way of paying attention so you're not listening to a podcast right you're not doing emails at the same time which you know the rest of the time might be fine but if we're in ritual space to have a way of really cultivating presence and this is why often rituals you know involve incense or music or particular movements because they're all ways of helping us be really present to our embodied experience so i invite people to think about you know use the five senses whether it's lighting a candle 
novel, whether you want to recite a poem, just anything that's going to help you get into that kind of headspace and body space. And then finally, repetition. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think sometimes in our consumerist culture we get carried away with is the sense that like, oh, I'll do it once and it'll be great. And, <laughs> and I really believe in this idea that, you know, Rituals are not just decorative, they're formative. And so by practicing over time, just like, you know, learning a musical instrument or, or working out in the gym, it's time, you know, time's effort. <laughs> it's that repetition that's necessary for us to kind of become the person that we want to be, for us to be shaped by the ritual. So I invite people to think about setting an intention, cultivating attention, and then repetition over time as a way of moving one of those habits into a into a ritual practice. Hmm. Yeah, and I think for maybe for most people, it uh, might come as a bit of a surprise, many of the very mundane yeah. uh, things that you mentioned uh, <laughs> as, as potential fodder for ritual. You quote Rabbi Heskel as saying, you know, perhaps the essential message of Judaism is mm. that in, in doing the finite, we can perceive the infinite. Yeah, I really wanted to counter this impression that spirituality or, or, you know, even religion are things that are foreign and complex and unavailable and, you know, s s irrelevant, honestly, because that was one of the joys for me of being in divinity school of, of starting to understand that religion isn't just like another column in the <laughs> in the activities list, right? Like now I'm going to play soccer and now I'm going to do religion, but that it's mm -hmm. really a way of, of a constant lens through which we can see the world. And that these practices, these rituals are ways to rededicate our attention to that way of seeing. And it's a way of seeing in which you know, at least in my theological assumption, right? All life is precious. The 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 capacity of every moment being present, the the belief of an underlying connection or union between all things. Those are theological propositions you don't have to believe in, but it, 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 it's an orientation rather than a category of activity. And so rather than telling people, you know, go on a three-week retreat in Bali or like start doing handstands every morning, you know, like I, I was really interested in taking the things that we already do every day and that honestly for many people i think they already have a taste of heaven in those practices to use that heschel phrase like that that, that there is already something that invites us to go deeper and the reason why i feel confident about this is that we saw this over and over again with readers of the harry potter books so i have this podcast harry potter and the sacred text with with my team and we didn't have to convince anyone <laughs> to read Harry Potter as a sacred text because people were already doing it, right? They were turning towards these books maybe after a breakup or, or, or after the loss of a loved one and look not necessarily looking intentionally for kind of moral guidance, but having it as a place of solace and having it as a place in which their hearts could be transformed. And so all, all we did was to resource readers of the Potter books with some ancient religious reading practices. And I think that's, that's the approach that I have for so many of these other everyday activities, right? What can we learn from pilgrimage about a walk with a dog? What can we learn from prayer about our gratitude journals? Like th there are these resources that we can draw on and translate so that they really are useful uh, to people today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I've noticed about your work in general, um, there's a sense that it's descriptive instead of prescriptive. Yeah. You 
you're you're describing what is happening rather than telling people what they should be doing. <laughs> That's just because I'm shy, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> well, I think I think also there's a lot to be said about um, you know particularly those those people that are disillusioned with yeah. with institutions, those that are you know whether they are non-believers, agnostics, atheists, you know, or or just have had a, a bad experience with the kind Absolutely. of a uh, very strong-handed uh, form of religion. Uh, there's something to be said about offering people paths rather than pointing them and telling them which paths they should be walking. Yeah, I I think that's so true. And, you know, I'm gay. And so I'm very... I'm just very receptive to the to the negative experiences people have had or the negative perceptions that they have, certainly of religious institutions, if not the the traditions themselves. But I also think, honestly, it's reflective of my own experience. You know, I... If someone had come in and told me, <laughs> you must do this, right? As in fact, they did, right? In middle school, when I was in this in this English boarding school with its its chapel, I was very, very reactive in a way to that, which I was like, well, screw you. You know, who are you to tell me? And so my own experience of having people kind of walk alongside me and offer invitations, but mostly in- in- inquiry, you know, offering questions and being interested for me, that was that was the way in which I was able to kind of enter this work. And so to, to some extent, it's massively shaped by, by my own experience. But I, I think my experience is relatively representative of a broader cultural moment. And, and what's important to say is that at some point, that, you know, invitation offering space making, I think it can only take you so far. At, at some point, we do need to turn, whether it's uh, spiritual direction, whether it's, uh, you know, the accountability of a community. At some point, it can't just be you wandering on your own and having a great time. Because, like, hello, spirituality is there also for the times when life is really not enjoyable, right? It's It's the moments when things are really hard. That's actually when often... That, that there's a, an experience of growth, for example. I'm thinking especially of Richard Raw, who's a wonderful Franciscan uh, uh, writer and teacher who prays every day for a daily humiliation. Because for him, <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. Because for him, he knows that there's so much in the world that affirms him and, and you know, that is, that is positive. He, and he knows that the spiritual journey for him is one of a descent rather than an ascent. And so th- th- I think this is a, a game of two halves, as a, <laughs> as a sports commentator might say, that you kind of start with the affirmation, right, and the, and the general gentle inquiry. And then over time, as people feel more ankle- anchored and settled, that's when you, when you kind of make it more robust and you invite into depth. Yeah, and something that you mentioned um, seeing is, you know, in the in the way that people are uh, finding communities in exercise groups like CrossFit or SoulCycle, yoga communities, sometimes the leaders of these communities are asked to perform outside of their expertise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so gym leaders are being asked for life advice or to officiate weddings and funerals. And and on the one hand, it shows just how much trust uh, people place in these uh, individuals. But on the other hand, they don't really have the training to be able to you know, not, they haven't gone to divinity school. They haven't had, you know, much training in how to go about this. There may be space and maybe need for a firmer way of giving people the tools to really help people in, in their times of crisis or in their times of transition. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think in some ways it's honestly about the lack of options elsewhere, right? That sense of, 
oh, who, who could we ask to officiate? Or, you know, where have I had experiences that felt like they touched on the transcendent and I felt safe? You know, that's that's why people are turning to folks who might not necessarily have any you know, official training. And of course, there's a personal relationship. So more and more people are less connected to, excuse me, my goodness, more and more people are less connected to congregations. So they just don't know religious officials who they would trust with something like this. And it's, as you said, it's everything from officiating weddings and and funerals to, you know, getting a text message at 4pm on a Sunday, uh, a SoulCycle instructor with the question from a rider who rides frequently in her class saying, should I divorce my husband? You you didn't get any training for that. And, and, And folks can do their best and follow their intuition and generally do an okay job. But honestly, we've also seen many, many cases of real, I mean, just failed leadership, I would call it, you know, people not respecting boundaries, you know, sleeping with members of their community, stoking conflict in ways that are really unproductive. So a a lot of the skills of community leadership or religious leadership are are just not shared and taught in those communities because they don't consider themselves a religious or, or a spiritual community understandably and yet nonetheless people are bringing those questions of depth to them in in ways that they're just not prepared for yeah for people's individual lives uh or maybe talking a little bit more abstractly you mentioned the common conception that people have between a a vertical division between the sacred Mm. and the profane Mm. where you know you have your big cathedral your church (laughs) or your designated temple space that's sacred and then you have your supermarket and that's you know profane that's the mundane Uh, i i really love thinking of the horizontal division and the horizontal line that runs through running through everything where it's not a matter of sacred space and non-sacred space but uh, a matter of depth so a supermarket for example you mentioned could could be incredibly sacred if you uh, come to it with the right mindset and the right perspective and at the same time you could be bored to tears in in a beautiful (laughs) cathedral as have we have we all right (laughs) right right (laughs) it feels almost like a democratization of mysticism Mm. Mm. Oh, I love that phrase. Yes, democratizing mysticism. I'll sign up to that. I, I, I think there's something there's something helpful that we can learn from history in that the sense of, you know, who the mystics are, and often they're the most beloved writers and, and, and kind of theological thinkers within a tradition, they're often really at the margin of the of the religious institution and come at a time when the institution is really struggling. And I think it's because mystics perhaps have a, 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 a willingness to risk and a capacity to describe something that is essential about the tradition, which maybe at some point was, you know, formed into a liturgy or into a set of texts or a set of songs or, right, it was given shape that kind of mystical heart was given shape in a structure. And that structure is the thing that has lived on. And over time, as generation passes after generation, perhaps all we have left is the shell. And, and what, we've, what we've started to miss is that mystical heart. Um, and so you, then you need kind of new mystics to, to help us all remember what was supposed to be at the heart of it in the first place. And, and I think we're in one of those moments where, you know, the I the idea that that the the church with you know or, or the synagogue frankly you know with an organ with uh, uh pews facing in a certain direction you know a certain set of 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 liturgical words that that that's the that's the way things have always been done and therefore should stay 
I mean, that is absolute fantasy, right? That the, the early Christian church met outside. The, the earlier versions of Judaism uh, were, were oriented around the temple, right? It was a place-based religion with priests and sacrifices. So r- religious culture changes. And I think what I expect to happen is that there are going to be kind of modern-day mystics outside of the institution who either force the institutions to reform or who who create new and interesting expressions of spiritual community that perhaps replace the existing ones that we have. Because what we've learned, as you said, Clay Christensen, that the innovation always comes from the margins. And I I think that's what that's what I'm pointing to with that kind of worldview that you know, the, 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 the deepest spirituality can live in the supermarket checkout <laughs> as much as in the, <laughs> as much as in the cathedral. Yeah. And you mentioned at one point, Thomas Merton in the book. Yes. Yes. And Merton is, uh, you know, I think uh, an excellent example of, of, you know, modern day mystic, a Trappist monk that for a long time was, you know, th- this voice of, of mysticism, this voice of ironically silence and the, the power of silence. You quote him saying that, talking about conventions, that conventions are the death of mm-hmm. real traditions, mm-hmm. that they are the parasites that attach themselves to traditions and devour all its reality, turning it into a hollow formality. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about before, where, you that's know, right. uh, the, the, those those old traditions that once were, were new and fresh and, and vivid, over time just become rote, and that convention becomes an, an evasion of reality, as, as Martin right. says as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, he is... <laughs> he is unafraid like he really goes in and so that 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 gives me partly the the cover i think to say the same <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's also honestly i think an invitation i mean i look at your work daniel and i think it's so first of all it's so beautiful and so well crafted i mean that the intention and the care with which you create these ritual experiences i think is extraordinary and and you're also pointing us to an orientation towards experience before doctrine, right? That you're you're not telling anyone that this ritual is associated with any set of beliefs, right? That there's mm-hmm. there's no language right. that you're imposing on people. You're, you're giving people an, an experience with which they then get can make meaning. Now we can have a conversation about what those meaning making structures should or could be, because I think sometimes it's dangerous to have an experience without some sort of integration but but i think that's something that's really powerful right now is to to help us reconnect with an experience and then have a conversation so what does this mean rather than starting as as is often that the, the sense right of, of engaging with a religion is that you have to believe something before you experience it that may or may not that may or may not be actually true but it's certainly the perception yeah absolutely i i found in you know, in my own life, the the most powerful experiences happened outside of the context of any any religious structure. In the book, you mention the importance of personal sacred movies, mm. and you, you, yours yours was a uh, was it uh, you've got mail you've got mail right? yes. <laughs> not something that I'd ever thought would be a, a sacred movie for someone, but after reading the book, can understand where you're coming from. For me, I, I definitely also have those those certain movies that. You know, when I go back to them and I rewatch them every few years, right. and it is—it's something I have to do alone, and it's something that I have to right. do in quiet because yeah. it is—it is—it is a work of art that 
leads me to transcendence. Um, and, and I think yeah. what, what I, what's important to me in this, Daniel, is that it, it helps us remember that we all have, you could call it spiritual agency, right? Like that, that there is something inherent about the human experience that orients us towards meaning, that orients us towards connecting with something bigger, and that those pathways can be exactly like you said, the, the things that we already love. And I, I want people to feel, this is one of my big hopes for the book, is that it gives people a sense of spiritual permission, right? That they, that they already have what they need, at least to, to take the next step in, in an exploration of their spiritual life. Hmm. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, the the spiritual life I think will go deeper than 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 most people expect and they will find they will find they will find themselves dropping to their knees in supermarkets. <laughs> if, if I see that I'll I'll know why. I'll know why, Casper. I'm laughing because there's also a hilarious supermarket scene in You've Got Mail, which I, <laughs> I we'll leave that for another podcast conversation. <laughs> So one final question I have for you, for those currently experiencing, you know, as, as all, of we, all of us are, the quarantining and lockdown due to the pandemic, how might people create and craft sacred space and time using the techniques in this book? One of my favorite practices that honestly has been so sustaining, especially during quarantine, is is a tech Sabbath. So you know, more than ever, we're reliant on our screens to feel connected in all sorts of ways. But on Friday nights, and this is very much inspired by, by the Jewish tradition of Shabbat, on, on Friday night, I turn off my phone and I turn off my laptop um, and I hide them in my bookshelf so I can't be tempted by, <laughs> by seeing my, my technological <laughs> tools. And then I light a candle and I sing a little song that I learned in summer camp. I sing it in Dutch. For me, what it represents is kind of a ritual transition from the, the week, the work week, into a time of rest and delight. And one of the things that I really learned from from Heschel was that the Sabbath is not just a time of rejuvenation to then go back to the work week, but that the Sabbath is the apex of our week. It is it is the time we have been working toward. And so in in Jewish tradition, it's actually you're told that, you know, not only should you you be with people you love and, and a strong community, but you're supposed to make love during the Sabbath, right? We're, we're all of these things that help us experience the peak of life. That's uh-huh. what the Sabbath is for. And and so essentially it's it, it it's entering, as he describes it, a palace in time. So mm, if we can't mm-hmm. travel through space, what we can do is travel through time with with ritual intention. And and that's for me what, what tech Sabbath time is all about. Now I don't have children at home, so that's that's one way that it's easier. But I think all of us, in one way or another, you know, whether it's a, a bath once a week, whether it's time when we really just want to read a favorite book without having the distractions of, you know, Twitter or text messages or whatever it is, c- creating those kind of palaces in time is, I don't know, it's it's been the way that I've been able to kind of mark progress week by week with something to look forward to, which is for someone who's oriented around the future as I am, it's really important to have something to look forward to. So I'm already <laughs> counting down to Sabbath time already. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Casper. There's one last thing that I want to ask you about before we yes. uh, conclude. I've asked you and uh, as everybody that comes onto this podcast, <laughs> a word or a concept that you have made up or have imported from another uh, realm entirely that helps us talk about things sacred without the baggage of those words. So what is your word or concept, Casper? My word is humaning. 
Humaning, yes. Could you uh, spell that? Yes. <laughs> H-U-M-A-N-I-N-G. It is a, a verb that describes the process of becoming more human. And this word comes from my collaboration with, with Angie Thurston, who's my co-founder at Sacred Design Lab and who co-wrote How We Gather With Me. And we were inspired by Kevin Kelly, who is a futurist who writes about technology. And he has a wonderful book called The Inevitable, in which he looks at various trends in technology that are not dependent on any individual company, but just where technology is going. And so he has words like screening and unbundling and various other words. And so we were inspired by by him to, to really pick up on this trend of people using the word human as somehow describing something true or of deeper meaning and value. So, you know, it really felt like a human moment or can we just be human together or, you know, th- th- mm. those kind of phrases. And so we we took that and we said, let's make that into a word um, of becoming more human, um, especially in a context when interactions, especially online, are going to increasingly, we're not going to know if we're interacting with a bot or with a human. And so this felt like a, a, a really helpful word to describe that journey into, uh, you know, depth and the and the capacity for empathy and generosity and creativity that, that ultimately makes us different from from robots. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Casper. And I look forward to, to humaning with you sometime soon. <laughs> yes, really appreciate you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Free Enchantment. You can find the links mentioned in this episode in our show notes on our website, reenchantmentpod.com. And if you like the message of this podcast, please, please, please subscribe and let one other friend know about the show. This is a young podcast, and like most things, it needs love in order to grow. Thank you, and see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.